This morning, I want us to think together about our assumptions. What do we assume to be the case? Earlier this summer, you'll know that uh, our family traveled up to northern Minnesota for uh, a camp that we took our oldest two kids to. And during the week we were there, we noticed that the camp kitchen, which wasn't huge, but fed probably between 30 and 70 people every day, every meal, we noticed that their, their kitchen didn't have a dishwasher, not, you know, not even a, a small one, no, no commercial dishwasher. And when someone asked about how they did all those dishes without a dishwasher, one of the staff said, why would we spend all that money on an appliance when some of the best community building, some of the best conversations happen when a team of people are washing the dishes together. That was a, a regular assignment for the, the campers or the staff to do together. And for a brief second, I, I thought to myself, now that's, that's an interesting hypothesis, right? Old-fashioned dishwashing equals deeper community. And I thought, I wonder what our kitchen would be like without a dishwasher. I thought about that for about five seconds. And then I remembered how much I liked having a machine wash all our dishes for us. And I put it out of my mind. And I, I didn't have the interest in actually testing that hypothesis at home until this past Wednesday when our current dishwasher went kaput. So thanks to an unanticipated circumstance, a breakdown of our home appliance, we're now on our way, we're maybe four or five days into testing our friend's assumption about communal dishwashing. And you can check back with us in a few weeks to see uh, whether it's going well or whether we've caved and have gone to Lowe's to look for a new dishwasher. We'll find out. My point is that there are, there are thousands of little assumptions we make about our reality. Assumptions about what we will like or what we will not like. Assumptions about what we can expect to happen. We, we make assumptions about other people. We make assumptions about ourselves. And, and many of these smaller assumptions are, are put to the test by the circumstances of everyday Reality. They either prove true or prove false, and we, we move closer or further away from them as a result. But there are other assumptions, assumptions I would call sort of core beliefs, core ideas. And those are deeper down in who we are, and they're also, in some cases, harder for us to prove, to know whether it truly is the case. Those might be assumptions about what is true, Assumptions about what is good, and especially assumptions about who or what we can trust. And those kind of core, deep assumptions often require a set of circumstances in order to be tested. And usually they're the kind of circumstances we wouldn't willingly volunteer ourselves for. Right? The kinds of things that tend to, to test our core assumptions are things like interruptions, or setbacks, failures, disappointments, transitions, dare I say, even pandemics. In the midst of, of those kinds of circumstances, we're challenged to, to revisit what we assume to be true. 
Throughout the, the first chapter of James, these kinds of circumstances, what James calls trials, or trials of many kinds, are, are in view. James is working through what do we do when we find ourselves in the midst of unexpected difficulties. And while he knows that these circumstances will test us, he also encourages us to take the opportunity in the midst of trials to test our assumptions as well. When we are being tested, we have the opportunity to test our assumptions. To ask what is most deeply true? Where are the deepest places of my good, my safety? What can I rely on? So I want to open to sort of halfway through chapter one here. Let me invite you again, if you brought your notebook, to copy these verses out as we go. And to ask God to help us to test our assumptions well. Let me pray for us as we open to the scriptures. Lord, I pray that we would be given eyes to see, ears to hear your wisdom this morning. Lord, give us a, a courage and even a lightness of spirit to confess to you what we lack, what we need this morning. And Lord, would you affirm most deeply within us what is true, in particular about who we are as children belonging to you and who you are as our good Father who loves us. Lord, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to copy along with me, this is the Word of God, James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. I'll read that a second time. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. A little over 12 years ago, when Katie and I found out we were expecting our first child, the, the go-to reference book at the time, I don't know if it still is, was a volume called What to Expect When You're Expecting. And what was helpful, I think, about that book was that it broke down the pregnancy into to each month, broke it down into these separate chapters, and it told you, as each new month came up, what questions might might uh, might, might come up for you? What concerns might you have? What you know, symptoms or, or illnesses or difficulties might you experience? What did you need to know at each step of the way so that you could keep going toward that nine-month finish line? I feel like this section, this, this section of text in James could be subtitled, What to Expect When You're Being Tested. Because it also surfaces the kind of questions, the fears, the doubts, the unpleasantries 
that come when we're in the middle of a trial. And when we're wondering, when will we ever come to the end of that trial? So in the midst of this section on trials, James offers us in verse 12 a single beatitude. He says, blessed or fortunate is the one who perseveres under trial. And beatitudes are not James's uh, domain alone, right? We know that Jesus spoke beatitudes. Actually, many of the teachers, Jewish teachers of wisdom in, in that time used beatitudes. And beatitudes in particular challenge us to see value in things that don't initially seem valuable. Beatitudes challenge us to see hidden value in things that do not seem valuable. They invite us to check our assumptions. And so here, this beatitude is saying, you are blessed when you are enduring trials. Trials of many kinds. That does not, on the surface of things, seem valuable to me, to us. But it offers us a chance to, to revisit what do we assume about ourselves? What do we assume is true when we're in the middle of a trial? What do you assume about yourself? Think back to maybe the last significant trial you've been through or you're in right now. Do you assume something about who you are as a result of why you're in that trial? Do you assume it's your fault that you messed up, that you are to blame, that you're shamed somehow because of that trial? Is that what you assume? Maybe you are tempted to assume that it's someone else's fault, to, to blame someone. Maybe you experience anger in the midst of a trial. But what if, together with James, if we receive his wisdom, that we might also consider ourselves blessed, fortunate in the middle of that trial? Fortunate because James says not that the trial itself is, is blessed, but because of something that comes from it, that comes at the end of it. James says, for the one who perseveres through trial, a crown is promised. And here the, the word that, that describes the crown that James, James chooses in the Greek is not a kingly crown. It's not a golden crown. It's a crown of laurels that would be given particularly to the athletes of James's day. Right, to people who had willingly subjected themselves to training and disciplining their bodies and, and competition with the hope, with the promise that one day that, that difficulty, that conditioning would lead them to the finish line. And when they reached that finish line, they would be gifted, they would be given this crown to wear. James wants us to know that in the midst of our trials, we can expect something. We can expect someone waiting for us at the end of that trial. And he says, there the Lord waits to bestow on us a crown of life, the crown that is life, a crown of everlasting life with God in his presence. So let me just invite you as you're writing out the text, if you find yourself in the midst of a trial and you are angry 
or full of shame or full of doubt or blame. Maybe you need to spend some time just imagining, just prayerfully imagining and meditating on this verse about that finish line moment. That at the end of this trial, the Lord desires to clothe you with his life and victory. The Lord does not shame you, but says you are blessed because you belong to him. As we endure challenges of many kinds, trials of many kinds, they reveal a lot about who we are and about who we trust. And so, starting in verse 13, James surfaces what I think are are sort of two polarizing or different assumptions we might have in the midst of trials, in the midst of being tested, ways that our our mind can, can be taken. The first option is outlined in verses 13 through 16. You can go ahead and start copying that, and I'll read through it for you. James says, when tested, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then... After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, dear brothers and sisters. As you're copying out that text... Let me point out that there are two closely related words in these verses, this section of verses, that are important. Even though they're similar, we have to distinguish between the two. One is the phrase, uh, a trial. James uses that word a lot just before these verses. A trial or a test. The second idea is the idea of temptation. James wants to make it clear that these are things that we often experience in in similar sorts of circumstances, difficulties, will yield a sense of testing and trial. It may also yield a sense of tempting. But he says they're different things, and we need to understand that they come from different places. So firstly, let me speak about trials or testing. James makes it clear to us that as we are followers of Jesus Christ, as we follow God in the mission he has for us, he can and he will lead us through trying, testing circumstances. God does not choose to insulate us from trials. And probably the clearest example of this, in my mind, in the narrative of Scripture is the story of Israel itself. Think about how God calls Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. He brings them through the desert wilderness and he desires to deliver them into the promised land. But the Lord knows that in order to do that, as he leads his people on that journey, 
He knows that there are going to be trials that they have to come through with him. He knows in advance the pursuing anger and violence of Pharaoh's army. He knows in advance the heat and the thirst they will experience in the desert. He knows in advance the uncertainty and anxiety they have about where they will call home. We could say these trials come with the territory of Israel's mission. They come with the territory of Israel's obedience. But we also know that in the midst of these trials, Israel also is prone to experience temptation. They are tempted to break from God's mission. They're tempted to veer off course. They're tempted to grumble. They're tempted to rebel. They're tempted to lose faith in the goodness of God. What's the difference between trials and temptations? Commentator Douglas Moo says, trials can become temptations based on the attitude with which we meet them. And I might paraphrase that, based on the assumptions we bring into them or develop through them. If I think about myself, when I am stressed, when I am challenged, when I am under duress, other things, physical, emotional, spiritual things happen to me. Right? I, I often lose sleep. My health can decline. Prone to anxiety, sometimes can even feel depressed in, in the midst of those stressing times. And in the same way that my physical state of affairs come under stress, in the midst of a trial, my core assumptions about God also experience stress. I can begin to wonder, is God tempting me? Has God contrived the, the current difficult circumstances of my life, looking for ways to expose me, to demonstrate my weakness? Does God desire to see me fail? Does God desire to find fault with me? Trials, I think, can become temptations when we begin to assume that God is rooting against us rather than for us. When we wonder if God is leading us away from life rather than further into it. Into that way of thinking, James wants to speak clearly. He says in verse 13, trials are something God leads us into, but temptation is never something God brings our way. He says, God tempts no one, for God himself cannot be tempted. It's not in his character. He cannot desire evil. He cannot desire to be deceptive. Instead, instead James says, temptation has a uniquely human source. A kind of life cycle that he describes. And he says, temptation begins with evil desires that emerge within us. And please do not hear a blanket condemnation of desire here. There are holy desires. 
deeply good desires the Lord has placed in us. But when James speaks about evil desires here, he describes them as the kind of desires that, that pull us away, that drag us off the path of trusting obedience. An evil desire is any desire that would undermine the trust, the assumption that God is good. That God is forming good things within us. James says, in times of temptation, we begin to doubt the assumption of God's goodness. And in doing so, he says, it opens the door for sin to come into our lives in a, in a more robust way. And in verse 15, he says, sin too has its own generation, its own lifespan. And as sin becomes more and more developed and more and more mature, the result is it degrades the life, the vitality, the completeness that God desires for us. Until finally, at the end of verse 15, James says, sin then begets, gives birth to death in a final way. In verse 16, James warns us against this deceptive trap. When we doubt the goodness of God, we make space to, to begin to believe that God is setting traps for us. Tempting us into places that are not our good. And as we give space to that in our lives and our imaginations, then we become flooded with thoughts, not from God, our, our protector, our leader, our healer, but from the enemy of our souls. To guard against temptation, to stiffen our resolve in the midst of trials, James wants to proclaim a different truth. James wants us to hear that God is not a tempter, he is not a deceiver, he is not one looking for the failure of his children, but God is instead a loving father. And that's the alternate assumption we are invited to place our trust in. Look at verses 17 and 18. James invites us to test this instead. He says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. Father who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. In our trials, James says, we must assume God is our Father. That God is our loving Father. That that will guide us into the place, into the, the fullness, the completeness, the, the finish line of what we are becoming in faith. A few years ago, I started a project in the basement. I was building a bookshelf wall. In, in a section of the, the back room in the basement. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I sort of just got into the project. I had some lumber, and I bought a cheap circular saw and was making some rough cuts. 
And in the, in the middle of that project, I talked to my dad on the phone one night. And I mentioned to him what I was doing and the tools I was using. And a few days later, on my front porch, this huge box showed up. And it was a miter saw with a, with a stand and everything. You know, it was, I don't know, several hundred dollar piece of equipment. And he sent it to me because he said, this is the, the tool you need, Dave. This is the tool you need to do the job well, to complete the project you've started, and to do it safely. And it, it proved to be not only invaluable for that particular project, but for several others in the past couple years. James tells us here in verse 17 that as God's beloved children, we also have a gift-giving father. Father, as James has already told us back in verses 4 and 5, who gives generously to us, who delights when we ask him, who even sends gifts to us when we don't ask him. He knows before we ask. He's the kind of father who desires for us to lack nothing. So here in verse 17, just as we are told that God gives gifts, with the, the desire to make us perfect and complete, so too we discover that the nature of the gifts he gives is, is matching to their purpose. His gifts are good and perfect and complete. His gifts are meant to supply us with exactly what is needed to mature faith and trust in us. And James says the gifts of God are good and perfect precisely because they come from him. They come from, from the father, he says, of, of the heavenly realms, the father of creation, the one who made the stars and the constellations in the heavenly realms. That powerful, all good, almighty creator is also a father to us. And he notices us as his children. And so in verse 18, James traces out the, the life cycle of the Father's love. What happens if we trust that? What happens if we believe deeply in the assumption that we are children of God who are loved by him as a father? Well, we see a different kind of fruit is born. A kind of fruit that is in marked contrast to what we just saw back in verse 15. James says, if we begin to doubt, if we believe God tests us to tempt us and to destroy us, that leads into this deceptive downward spiral that goes deeper into desire, deeper into sin, deeper into death. Instead, James says, if we believe God is a father who loves us, it gives birth to us, gives birth to us deeper into life. And in verse 18, he says, he chose to give birth to us through the word of truth. The word of that truth, commentator Miriam Kamal concludes, is the story of his son. The story of Christ's incarnation, of Christ's death, of Christ's resurrection. And so it's the invitation that we are given to rehearse, given to believe, given to assume ever more deeply. That in the word of truth, 
in the one who is the word of truth, Jesus the Son, God is extending to us that same gift that we might be joined to him in life, in death, and in resurrection. That we are designated members of his family. I want to finish there this morning, and I want to just give you a few questions to go back into these verses with this week. If you are in the middle of a trial, let me invite you to to ask of this text, how is it that you are blessed even in the midst of trials? How is that a good thing even when it does not seem to be good? Alternatively, if you are feeling tempted, if you are feeling the desires warring within you, ask yourself, what are you assuming about God and his love toward you, his character toward you as his child? And then finally, what gifts has the Father given to you because he loves you? Maybe take time to inventory, to list out to reflect on, to give thanks for those gifts. And also consider whether there are particular gifts you might ask him for in this season.